Jesus in speaking to the people who were following him around and deciding whether they were actually going to follow him, asks people a question. He asks them a number of questions, a number of self-evaluating questions, especially in the Gospel of John. One question he asks them in John 5:44 is, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek humility before God? I've done that before, but I've just changed the words of Scripture, and I hope it's caught your attention. I'm only going to do it for a minute. That might be what we expect Jesus to ask. How can you believe when you seek glory from one another, but you don't seek humility before God? That's not actually what Jesus says in this question should replace seeking glory from each other. He doesn't tell us to replace seeking glory with humility. He says here, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The problem is not here that you don't seek humility, it's that you seek glory in the wrong place, which might strike us as a little odd. The, the only way often that we're used to seeking glory is a way that we know is, is bad and dangerous and deceptive, and in a way that, that ultimately is unsatisfying. Our, our way of seeking glory when we do it, we know ends in something that's sort of like drinking salt water. It, it just makes you thirsty for more. And yet, Jesus seems to acknowledge here in John that we were made for a certain kind of glory. That we were made to be known. That we were made to be acknowledged as something that in its right way is significant. That matters. And our reflex as, as human beings, as human beings who are infected by sin, is to look for glory in a way that we weren't made to receive it. And in a way that doesn't satisfy. And yet... Jesus says here, there is a kind of glory that you ought to be looking for, a kind, of, a kind of recognition, a kind of saying, you do matter in the right way, and a way of receiving that that doesn't turn us in on ourselves, but that helps us to look outward. He refers to it as the glory that comes from the only God. That glory is pointed to in our passage this morning. Once again, our passage crosses over two chapters in 1 John. Those chapters weren't put there by John. They were put there by somebody else later. And so this morning, we're looking at four, four verses from 1 John. 1 John 2, 29 through 3, 3. Now, as you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? First John 2:29 through 3:3 3, 3. If you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. that he is righteous. We know. Everybody that John writes to knows that. Even the people who had left the congregation that John is writing to would have acknowledged that God is in fact righteous. So he starts in a very strong place. He's described already how God is light. And you may remember from a few weeks back this picture of of. God, who in his character has no dark corners, no shady places, no hiding places, because there's nothing to hide. There, there are no, none of those contradictions in his character that we so often find in our own character, where there might be one thing in our character that's good, but there's another thing in our character that directly contradicts it, and we know that they can't both be good because they're in competition with each other. There's no such competition, no contradiction in the character of God. He is light and in him is no darkness at all. And that light that's part of his own character, that's part of what he is in himself, exercises itself. It extends itself to the way that he acts, to the way that he relates to us. And I think that's something of what John is getting at when he says that God is righteous. There's this character that God has in himself that has no dark spots, and there are no dark spots in the way that he acts and in the way that he relates to us. We know there are dark spots in the ways that we relate to other people. There are hiding places in our relationships. We sort of hedge our bets with one another. Sometimes we're not entirely honest. We feel like there are things that we have to hide. There is none of that with God. He feels no need to hide anything about who he is or what he's like from us. And that very God is making children in his own likeness. John says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, who does righteousness, who walks in the light in such a way that they live out God's shadowless character together, anyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And what we might really find amazing is that John actually anticipates that as he looks at this church that he's writing to, that he's actually going to find what he's writing about there. That he's actually going to find people who, not yet perfectly, but really are practicing righteousness, are living out in their relationships with each other the character of their father, 
he actually expects that to be happening among the people of God. You, you, this is how you can tell that you're looking at a child of God when you see a pattern, a growing pattern, a real pattern of somebody living like their father lives, relating like their father relates. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. He's going to come back around to that. Once again, John drops a marker for some big category, practicing righteousness. He's left that here for us now. He's going to come back around to it in the passage that we're planning to look at next week. But first, he he pauses, as as he does often. He pauses, and he allows us to ask the question, how is verse 29 even possible? How is it possible for anybody to practice righteousness in a way that in any real way reflects the righteous character of God? And he begins to answer that in verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason that there are people in this world, the reason that there are people in this building who can actually practice righteousness is because we actually are made, remade as God's own children. That is the kind of love that the Father has shown to us. Not only kind of legal forgiveness of sins, that's included in the whole gift, but that he has made us his own children and is making us to live as his own children. Not only something that he does for his own convenience, it's something that he does in love for us. It's how he has shown his love to us by making us his children. There is a longing that's built into the fabric of each one of our souls to know and experience and feel the love of a father. Some of you have felt that really powerfully from your own father, uh, whether biological or adopted. Some of you have felt that powerfully from a human father. And you felt the benefits from it. Uh, Some of you perhaps have felt a huge gap in that area. We know that that longing to feel the love of a father is built into every one of us. And and you can see it. You can see it in movies. Uh, One of the one of the kinds of movies where you can see the longing for a love of the father is actually in sports movies. Often. The happy ending at the end of a sports movie. Of course, you're usually dealing with a situation where there's an underdog and there's some some evil competitor that wants to beat them and, and the underdog works really, really hard. And then at the very last minute, the underdog pulls out a victory. And one of the, the common things that happens in these movies is the underdog in the movie has a father who's saying throughout the movie, you're wasting your time. You shouldn't be spending your time golfing or playing basketball or, 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 or cycling or anything like that. You, you, should, you should be part of the family business. You should be learning how to work 
hard, you should be doing exactly what I'm doing. And, of course, this person continues to persevere in, in, in what appears to be their calling in the movie. And then at the very end of the movie, they pull out a victory over this, this evil competitor. And they're being lifted up on the shoulders of their fans and teammates. And then the glory moment is when the father shows up and says, That's my son! That's my son. This happens repeatedly in sports movies. Why is that? Well, it's because we all want to hear that. We all want to hear from a father gladly and proudly, that's my son. This is the kind of love that the father has shown us. The, the, the that's my son moment that that, that tension is built for throughout the movie where a son doesn't feel that love from his father or a daughter doesn't feel that love from her father and then finally gets to hear it. That is That happens without ever being compromised in the way that the father looks at his own son. The father, God the father, has always looked at his son and said, you are not wasting your time. You're doing exactly what I want you to do. You are the exact representation of who I am. That's my son. He said it almost verbatim when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's, that's the way the father has always looked at his son. Because his son deserves it. And here we are, having been brought through that son into the same circle of approval. So that if you trust in Jesus, you stand where Jesus stands. And the father says, that's my child. I accept that child as much as I accept my own son in whom I am well pleased. Without compromise. And we know that we have not yet completely learned how to live in a way that the Father can look at everything we do and say, that's my son. But he's starting to teach us how. He's starting to teach us as his children to do the kinds of things, to live in the kinds of ways that, that here and there in our life, the Father can look at what comes out of our heart, what comes out of our mind, what comes out of our lives and say, I see my son there. Isn't that what we long for? We, we long to be the kind of people who can stand before God and be perfectly received. And we are through his son. And we know really that we want even more than that. We want everything we do, everything about us, everything about our experience to be something that the father can look at and smile. And he's making us those kind of children. There is always a tug on us for this kind of for this kind of affirmation, for this kind of being known, for this kind of being recognized, and we know that that tug often pulls us in the wrong direction. It pulls us in the direction of trying trying to receive what Jesus called the glory that comes from man, trying to to get other people around us to affirm to us, to give us the absolute assurance that yes, you are good enough. I find you good enough. You've arrived in my 
eyes. And even in those fleeting moments when it actually shows up and somebody tells us, I'm really impressed with you. What I've seen you do has been really, really kind and noble and you're really good at it. We find that it goes away really fast. And what somebody has told us two days ago doesn't satisfy us anymore today. Because that way of finding our identity, that way of getting the assurance that we long for, is the world's way of doing it. And in the end, the world does not know us. That's what John says in John 3.1. In the second half, we are children of God, and so we are. The world doesn't put much stock in that. The world doesn't say, wow, you are the children of God. The, the world says, as we saw last week, we have the things that God made, so we don't need God. And so if the world looks at, at us as God's children, as the people who say we are what God made, and so we do need God, we find our identity in him, the world says we don't put any stock in that at all. We're still here trying to find our assurance from the things that are made. They, they don't have the value system that's needed to recognize God's children for what they really are. And so we never find satisfied our desire for belonging and assurance and identity in the world. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It doesn't recognize him for who he is. Someday that will change. Someday, the world will have no choice but to see. Someday, the world won't have any choice but to see who God is by seeing with eyes who Jesus really is. It is coming. And when it comes, when Jesus is revealed, then those of us who trust him will be revealed with him. People's value systems will be forced to change. And we will be seen in a very different way than we're seen now. And we begin to see that in verses 2 and 3. We see what we are in chapter 2, 29 through 3, 1. And in verses 2 and 3, we see what we will be. As he moves in that direction, John first just affirms, here's who we really are. You're not going to hear it from the world. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. The world will at least agree with the not appeared part. Uh, the world is not going to show up and say, if I had to guess who the children of God are, if I had to guess who, who, who has been given glory and is someday going to be revealed in glory, I'd pick you. Because you're so impressive to me. Now, there are things about us that sometimes are impressive to the world, but we're probably not, if the world had to vote for who they had to guess would be the children of God, we probably would be left somewhere off in the corner. Because so often God has not chosen as his own those that are really, really impressive in the eyes of the world. What we, what we shall be has not yet appeared. And it hasn't even yet fully appeared to us. We haven't yet felt 
what it is that we are going to be someday. But we are going to be what we are going to be. And John describes that in the second half of verse 2. We, we haven't felt fully what it means to be children of God. But someday we will. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Right now, we imitate Christ. We, we, we do our best to imitate Christ, and we do it by faith. Do you ever stop and, and wrestle with the fact that this person that you're banking all of your hope on, this person that you're trying to imitate in life by trusting him, this person who really is the most important relationship in your whole life is a person that you've never yet seen. That's, that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And Jesus actually assigned a special blessing to that very experience. Thomas uh, finally sees Jesus. He sees his scars. He sees his wounds. And he finally says, I believe. And Jesus doesn't say, well, your belief doesn't count. But he does say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. I think that was written for a reason. Because most of the people who read those words in John's gospel actually fit in that category. We don't see this one that we trust in. And by that kind of unseeing belief that the Spirit has put in us, He is making us, by degrees, into the image of Christ. And the more we're made like Him, the more we long to be like Him. And the more we long to see Him. And someday, someday you actually will. Someday you will put your eyes on this person that you love and long for and long to be like imperfectly and you will see him exactly as he is. And seeing will strip away all of the imperfections in being like him. All of the imperfections in loving him. Right now, we imitate by faith. And someday... Everything that is left over, everything imperfect about that, will be blown apart by seeing him. John says here in verse 2, or in, in, yeah, in verse 2, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There's something about the very fact that we will see him that will be the thing that makes us like him. We experience that in, in little ways now. You can perhaps hear a description of uh, the way that Michael Jordan played basketball. And that, frankly, that might register with you as absolutely irrelevant if you're not a basketball fan. If you are a basketball fan, it might register as relevant. And even so, hearing about the way that he played basketball is not the same thing as seeing it. In 1993... Every 14-year-old boy who held a basketball, as he, as he played basketball, as he shot, as he jumped, as he found a, a rim short enough to dunk on, as he did that, he stuck his tongue out when he did it because he saw Michael Jordan do that. And there was something about the way Michael Jordan played basketball that, that looked almost magical. 
And a kid who saw that happen couldn't help but want to be like Mike when he played basketball. And so Gatorade capitalized on that desire. Be like Mike. And then the cheap hook, drink Gatorade. People who saw that, who had any value for basketball, wanted to be like that and could not help but be like it. We do this imitating all the time. And there's something about seeing the imitating that causes us just to do it. If you'll forgive one more sports analogy. Uh, I remember being uh, in, in high school and playing tennis. And like with most of my athletic pursuits, I did it at a mediocre level. But we had some, some, uh, some international students who had come over from Finland and Italy um, and who, who had been playing tennis for a long time, and they were good, Henrik and Tommaso. And so once in a while, we'd have the opportunity to watch their varsity matches, and they played tennis beautifully. And I, I may have been imagining it, but I don't quite think I was, that when I went and played my match after I watched them, I played better tennis. There was something about just seeing the way they did it that caused me to imitate the way that they did it. Poorly, but really. That doesn't hold a candle to what it will be like to see the person that right now we really do admire and to see with our eyes fully and completely why we admire him, why we love him, why the deepest longing in our heart is to be like that person. And when we see him as he is, we will be. We will actually be like Jesus. The Bible refers to this hope over and over and over. Almost every single letter in the New Testament refers to the fact that Jesus is coming back. I wonder how often uh, that repetition has, has been at work in each one of our hearts this week. Maybe more this year. Maybe more this year. Maybe more hope of just saying, Jesus, we long for you to come back. Partly because this world is such a mess. But partly because we long for you. What's it going to be like when we are like him? Well, in one sense, John says it hasn't yet appeared what we will be like. Uh, we're only given a sliver of, of, of a picture of what it will be like. But the Bible does make some references to it. Uh, it does tell us that this mortal body will throw off mortality, that this, this weak body will be made like his glorious body. Think about how much energy we spend right now trying to avoid death or trying to avoid little things that feel like death. How much fear just infects our daily lives. How much checking we do to make sure that we don't die or cause somebody else to die. How much fear saps our energy. And in some ways, that's because we, as, as I've heard it described before, we walk around like balloons trying not to be popped. We really are fragile in this life. And someday we will no longer be at all. Every, every fear of death will be absolutely gone. Imagine how free our minds will be when we no longer think about that at all anymore. Immortality will be Part of it, the other thing that's described that we will receive when Jesus returns is glory. We're told in Colossians 3 that when Jesus is revealed, we also will be revealed with him in glory. 
And that longing to be recognized will be fulfilled without any of the twisted longings that we make it into now. We'll be able to be recognized without turning that in on ourselves. We'll be able to recognize we'll be able to be recognized in a way that we can say with complete gladness that everything good that's recognized in us belongs to Jesus. We'll be glad to be recognized in that way, to be revealed with him in that way. And what John really focuses on here, what it will be like for us to be like him, is he focuses on purity. He he refers to that in verse 3, and we'll return to this in a minute. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You ever fight with your own motives? You ever fight with your own thoughts? You ever have those times when you do something good for someone else and someone actually sees it and they come to you and they say, that was, that was so admirable, that was so kind, that was so good for you to do that and you're good at doing it and I see that in you and and you feel in yourself this sense of, i got to get some more of that. I want, I want more. How do I get more of that kind of recognition, that kind of affirmation? Then you look at yourself and you think, I've totally turned it all inside out. I did something that actually was good for someone else, and I turned myself into a black hole of self-congratulation. You think, when, when am I going to be done? When am I going to be able to... to do something good for someone else and simply be happy that they received it and that I had the privilege of being a part of it. When will I be free? Again, imagine imagine the weight that will be lifted from our minds when every single deceptive desire is gone. Every single motive is absolutely pure. Everything we do will be completely done in love, we will be completely free from the desire to, to make everything about ourselves. How much distraction and weight and darkness and frankly brain fog comes from that longing to drink the salt water of self-glorification. It will all be gone. It will all be gone. We'll be like him forever. There's something about that longing. There's something about that hope. There's something about that confidence that someday, someday before too long, it really is going to be like that. There's something about that that answers a question C.S. Lewis has asked. In his, in his essay, I know this is, uh, some of this is rerun for those of you who are at the camp out. Uh, this is worth rerunning, I think, for me. C.S. Lewis uh, does some some imagining of what it will actually be like to receive the glory that's in store for us. The right kind of glory. The free kind of glory. Sharing the glory of God. And he, he does this in his sermon that's been turned, to an, turned into an essay, The Weight of Glory. And as he does that, he, he sort of asks the question, or acknowledges, it may be possible 
for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. Is it really worth it to, to, to sit and imagine and to think what it will be like for us to receive the glory of Jesus in the right way? Now, he asks that hypothetically. I don't think it's possible to think about it too much. I think it's possible to think about it in the wrong ways, but I don't think it's possible to think about it too much. And one of the reasons, if we ask, what practical good does it do for us to think about what it will be like then, John answers that in verse 3. Whoever thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There's something about knowing what's coming then, something about knowing what we're going to be like then, something about knowing that these longings in us to be pure and to be free, that they will be fulfilled, that motivates us to be pure and free now. It gives us a picture of what Jesus is like for us and what we're like in him that actually allows that to come out more now that brings that imitation near for us. This is worth camping on. It's worth thinking about. It's worth putting on an index card on your mirror in your bathroom to remind yourself from where you are in the day-to-day and the distraction and the troubles of where you're going, where you really are going before too long. I think there's another benefit to doing this. It, when, when you think about what you will be like, it helps you to be like that today. When, when John says that we purify ourselves as he is pure, it's helpful for us to remember what's at the very core of purity, of righteousness, in John's letter. And that is love. So, this is not only the benefit of Knowing that this is coming is not only for me, it is for us. We purify ourselves in a way that expresses itself in purer and purer love for each other today. And that's where Lewis goes when he asks the question, what practical good does it do to think about this? He says it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. Think about that. You think about the potential future glory of your neighbor. You think about your neighbor who you know that you are called to love and that you wrestle sometimes to like. You think about that neighbor, that brother or sister's future glory. Here's how Lewis describes it. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. That's a lowercase g. To live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Is that your anticipation of what your brother or sister 
sitting six feet at least away from you is going to look like to you someday? It has not yet appeared. It has not yet appeared what we will be like. And so we strive to love one another. We know that we ought to love one another. And someday the striving will be done. Someday you will look at your brother and your sister who you like partly now and who sometimes troubles you, sometimes irritates you, sometimes does things that, are, that, that you know technically are fine but are just plain foreign to you and you have these, this stream of culture shock in your interactions with people who are unlike you and strange to you, someday all of that difficulty will be completely gone. Someday your neighbor, your brother, your sister, will be a source of unfiltered delight for you. You will look at them and say, I see the glory of Jesus in you and nothing gets in the way. I think that you will look at that person and say, I still see the you that you were then because God made you to be that way. I see the glory of Jesus through you like I would see it through a prism. You look through a prism and you don't only see light, you see a rainbow. You see light in all of its different expressions. And God made each one of us to be a particular way. And sometimes those particularities get in the way of us genuinely enjoying one another. They make love a labor. Someday they will not be anymore. We will look at one another and say, it is not a struggle in the slightest for me to be really glad about the way that you are. Because I see Jesus in you. What does that do for us today? That gives us a holy curiosity about one another. It allows us to be able to say, the glory is there. It is there. It's there in clay pots. Sometimes it's easier to see the clay. Sometimes we can see good things show up and think, wait a minute, I see clay there. And so maybe the light isn't real. That's not true. Beloved, we are now children of God. It is here. It is here now. We have the opportunity, knowing what we're going to see with our eyes, to know that it's there now. To have a confidence that we will be with one another in complete joy forever. And that today, under that anticipation, we can have more of it now. We can look at each other now and say, God really is doing something in you. In you as you. And so I want to know you. I want a preview of what I'm actually going to see someday. And so I'm going to look for it. I'm going to look for those places where I see the character of Jesus shining through you. I'm going to look for the specific, unique ways in which God shines through you uniquely through your strengths, through your ability to see things that I can't see, through your perspectives that don't come naturally to me. Instead of seeing those differences and thinking, I'd rather get away, to see those differences and say, I want to find my preview of what we're going to see someday. Someday I will be like him. Someday you will be like him because you will see him 
as he is. And as we hope for that, together we purify ourselves, our own character, our own thought processes, and our own relationships. We purify the way that we look at one another and respond to one another. As we long for the day when we will love each other without any hindrance, it happens now. It happens today. Father, we, when we stop and think about it, which is not often enough, we long for this day. We long to see our Lord, our Rescuer, our King, with our eyes. We long to be like Him. Your own Spirit has put that longing in us as your children. We groan, longing for the redemption of our bodies. You've put that there. You've designed us for that day to come. And you've put us here in the in-between time for a reason. So give us grace then to remember where we're headed. To remember that the time here is short. To remember that you've given us your spirit to be growing the character of Christ in us. I pray that that character would show up as we treat one another as your children. Who will someday be revealed with Jesus in glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.